The Lord has been so good to us this morning. Uh, hasn't it been wor- wonderful to worship? And uh, that's a new song for me as well, Brian. And what a, what a wonderful, wonderful thing uh, for us to share in. And so I surrender all, and he reigns, right, above all. Uh, what a feast, what a feast. It's good to be with you. If you'd turn with me in your Bibles, I'd appreciate it. We'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, we'll, we'll tackle a topic that you, as good Bible students, good Sunday school attenders, would have uh, heard of and, and maybe mapped out before. Uh, but I've been moved, as I've read it recently, uh, that uh, Paul gives us some great advice here about how to go on in life. And uh, I mentioned to you a Sunday or so ago that part of what Paul is doing is trying to take us into the new world of the imagination, take us into the new kingdom, into the new perspective, into the new paradigm, and, and then ask, what does it mean when we see that Lord Jesus does indeed reign over all? What, do we, what does it mean for us when we see the destiny of the world heading towards Jesus and his return? What does that mean in practical effect? And this morning, it seems to me that Paul is trying to correct the folks at Corinth who are confident, confident in their knowledge, confident that they can apply the right ideas, confident that they have the authority. In other words, if they're in the right and they're in the know, If they're the ones who really have things figured out and they have the facts straight, they have the right to call things as they see them. It seems to me that Paul tells us that life is more complicated. And just having a few facts straight and having some reasons sort of honed and polished is not enough. Instead, it takes more from us to find our way in the world as Christians. And Paul, I believe, lays out this advice. We've seen it before in Romans, where honestly the picture looks clearer to me. And the verdicts look clearer in terms of how they manage. The particular crisis is one that we don't face, but we face a lot of things sort of like it in one way or the other. The crisis back then was meat offered to idols. In many places there was hardly any meat in town except what went through the temple. And then that stuff was resold, and so there was all these crises. Do we eat that meat once it's been offered to the idol? Is it okay to buy that meat, eat it at our home? Is it okay to eat that as the, at the guest of somebody else's home? Is it right to go to a temple festivity and eat that? Is it right to go to a, a dinner at the temple in an adjacent room? And, and on and on the questions go, and, and, and so on. And some of these uh, folks in Corinth were sure they've had the answer, They've seen the light, others haven't, they're slow, but they've seen the light and they know they're in the right and they know how to go forward, so they think. If you'll follow along in verse 1 of chapter 8, 1 Corinthians. Now about food sacrificed to idols, this is one of a laundry list of things they brought up to Paul, I think, in a letter. And I think here he's going to quote the folks at Corinth. And their policy. Here it is. We know that we possess 
knowledge. We all possess knowledge. Now, Paul begins to chip away at their confidence in a couple of lines. First is a warning. He adds, but knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Knowledge, he observes, can trigger arrogance. Knowledge inflates. But you don't build community and fellowship on just that. Instead, community and fellowship is built on something greater, something called love. And then he qualifies their observation in the next verse, verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. You think you have it all figured out, but there's more to this than you're processing. And frankly, you don't have the right set of equipment in mind right now to ever go further. Verse 3, but whoever loves God knows what God wants. Wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me, let's read that again. But whoever loves God, doesn't it seem like the argument for Paul ought to go this way? Whoever knows, loves God knows what God wants. Whoever loves God knows God. They're the ones who really know God. Isn't that what you, you ought to come next? But what does Paul say here? He sort of surprises us. But whoever loves God is, he says, known by God. Now that throws us for a loop. Known by God. He does this on one other occasion in his letters when he's talking about people and, and wanting people to know God. Uh, and, and it's crucial that you come to know God. And, and he kind of stops himself in mid sentence and, and he says, or more importantly, what to be known by God. And so Paul gives us in a cryptic little way here, in a way that's kind of hard to express, uh, a key to what I think is developed in the next, uh, in the next paragraph. But let me just warn you now, Paul is saying... That knowledge is more about just the factoids we have in our head. And we know about other things. The knowledge that matters is knowledge that's relational. Knowledge that is born and enriched and defined by a relationship. And he knows in a shorthand way when he talks about how he came to know God, he feels occasionally just a... a, a kind of obliged to stop and blurt it out in shorthand fashion. He spells it out many times later, and that is this. How did we ever come to know God? How did we ever come to understand who God is? He knows it happened this way. It happened because God loved us first. It happened that God chose us and wooed us and drew us and spoke to us and showed us His love. And it's when we saw that love manifested in Jesus Christ then we knew God already loved us. You didn't love God first. You loved God because you found out this God has loved you. The initiative starts with God. It's a funny thing. Knowledge is still like that in our day. In other words, knowledge, the way we use the word know, has all kinds of complexities to it. Sometimes it's just about mere factoids and uh, mere pieces of knowledge, uh, mere facts that we think we can recite. And other times it's uh, uh, matters of um, a kind of relationship and so on, and every nuance in between. So I've met a big shot 
once or twice in my life. Did you know that? Uh, don't, don't be altogether surprised, right? Uh, there was a famous general uh, that, that came to our university, spoke one evening, and uh, General Schwarzkopf, and I, I've got my picture taken with him, right? How about that? Uh, it's Debbie, and then the general, and myself. We're there in a, in a photo, and so on. I, I shook his hand. I, I met him. Uh, he was kind to me. We exchanged pleasantries for about 30 seconds or so, and then on to the next person. We had a picture taken with him and exchanged pleasantries for 30 seconds or so. But anyway, there it was, and I, I'm proud enough of it. So there's a sense in which I can say, I know who he is, right? And there's even a sense I can say I know him in the, in the narrowest of way. I, I mean what? I met him once, right? But notice the thinness of our relationship would be revealed by this. If you ask the painful question, <laughs> and that is, but does the general know you, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the truth is, we don't have any relationship to speak of, right? Now, the question is this. Paul, I think, is emphasizing this idea that we know God because he first knew us. We love God because he first loved us. But he can capture in this little shorthand way and manner to suggest this, that the question about knowledge is not settled by how many facts we have right, but another kind of more personal knowledge. And that is whether we know God. And he quite catches himself, right? He means by that a relational kind of knowledge, right? God knows us. We've come around to know Him and love Him and respond to Him because of what He did to take the initiative. And Paul goes on in the next paragraph to say, that's the big deal. Let's read, starting there in verse 4. And here's the Corinthians. They've got their facts straight. And here's what they are promoting. So then, about eating the food, uh, back to that question, that's offered to idols we know that, and here's the Corinthian, I, I believe, here's their line. An idol is nothing at all in the world. And we know also that, this next thing is true, there is no God but one. And by the way, both of those things are absolutely true. For even if there were, Paul goes on, these so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, and indeed, there, there are plenty of folks around, Paul's argument is, that call things gods and, and, and call many other things lords. But in verse 6, though, notice this. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. Now that's a great confession that a good rabbi you would expect to make. There's this one God, right? And notice in this, he feels compelled, though, to add, uh, to add this, because this rabbi has come to know something about God, or God's come to know him through the action of God's agent and son. And he adds this to his confession, pretty remarkable for a rabbi. Not just the God the Father, but then what? But there is one, but one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom all things came, and through whom we live. And the same confession he has for God, the Father, 
he has for the son. And my argument would be there that what you're seeing Paul discover when he discovers Jesus' mission and what Jesus' mission tells us about the Father, you're discovering the DNA of what Christians eventually call the doctrine of the Trinity. And he won't just offer this word for the Father, but he goes on to offer it for the Son. And again, the idea is this. They want to say, I, I can make my policy decision. There's no such thing as a God. It doesn't matter. I, so I can go into this temple. I can eat. I can do this. I can do that. There's none of these. I, I'm sophisticated. I understand this thing. I've got this monotheism worked out. There's no these other gods around. I, I know what I'm doing here, Paul. I know what I'm doing. I know there's only one God, and there's no other gods. So just sort of get out of my face. Because I know, and I'm acting in according with knowledge, and it's my prerogative to act as I know, I understand what's going on, I know what's in place. And Paul says, okay. Now, he has some more things to say in chapter 10, we'll, we'll save that for later. But he says, okay, I, I do understand, but let's come back. What do we know about this one God? And notice Paul's approach is confessional. That in his heart is revealed in this, he's about God. But Paul's mindset in his heart is revealed in this, he's talking and showing allegiance to God, right? This is not factoids about God. And now since I've said these things and they're true, I know I can reason from them and act the way I want. But Paul says, no, 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 that these things about God, they're not to be approached this way where you just kind of say, well, this is the fact. And so I can do as I see fit. Instead, Paul says, no, let's look at these same things that you've said to be true. Here's the way we go at them. And these words, by the way, I think are very, very influential in the most famous early Christian creeds. What we call the Creed of Nicaea, which I wholeheartedly embrace. If you understand it rightly, I wholeheartedly embrace. Completely with all of my being, I, I embrace. Uh, I, I just want to say its words are shaped, it seems to me, from these reflections in Scripture. There's one God Almighty, the, the Father Almighty, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ. Right an echo from these expressions in Scripture. And Paul is trying to say, I know this God, but I know this God in a confessional kind of way. I know him in a relational kind of way. I know who he is because I've known the Son, and the Son has shown me who he is. I know what this God is up to because I've seen what he's been trying to do through this Son. Notice Paul's affirmation is confessional. It's relational. It's not third party like there are facts about God and if I apply these facts about God, I can get to the right answer. No, he says, you, you don't go forward with this way. Just as a simple illustration, you might go back to the scenes in the New Testament where the, Satan comes and tempts Jesus. Have you ever thought through that? In those little scenes, there's hardly anybody in the Bible who quotes more scripture than Satan. He even seems to be able to pull out some pretty apt references, right? He seems to have some very telling and important verses. 
but his act of quoting scripture is a dense distance application for his own advantage. And you can't get scripture right that way. And Jesus shows a humble dedication to be loyal to Jesus. And that's the lens through which you can see what really is going on in scripture. And Jesus gets it right and Satan doesn't. And Paul here is mapping out this kind of vista for us. This is not about you applying knowledge and being so proud that you are in the know. This is about you being drawn into the love of God and loving God in response to God having loved you. And the disposition you take to this is not just applying all the facts and being so proud and looking down at those people who are slow, right? Can't stay with you. They're, they're, they're steeped in tradition or steeped in some sort of superstition. And you're so smart. You're so smart. You're so smart. And Paul just says, no, you're not really smart. The book of Proverbs says it this way, right? That the beginning of all wisdom starts with what? This fear and reverence of God. And so Paul goes on in verse 9, verse 7, I'm sorry, and, and reasons that they need a different conclusion than the one they're reaching. That they can go where they will, eat how they want to eat, make the call they want to make, because they know these gods are nothing, Right? Verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat a sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. I think this is another thing that the um, Corinthians were happy to say, that this is not a big issue with God. Food does not bring us to God. Uh, and we are no worse if we do not eat, uh, and no better if we do. Paul warns in verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, that is uh, quite crudely the word authority, the authority you have on the basis of knowledge that you think you're right, don't let that become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge, eating an, uh, an, an, in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? They might fall back into that process he's worried about. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by you and your knowledge. Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. It's not just against them. They're Christ's body, and, and, and you have to be aware. There's a, there's a fault before Christ. Verse 13, therefore... If I eat what causes my brother and sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now, I, I mentioned to you that I think in Romans, uh, the, the whole package and discussion of this is a little neater and e easier to manage. 
The truth is, I've given you just the first sort of volley in this conversation as it's recorded in Corinthians. Uh, this passage is followed by, no big surprise, chapter 9. But when you read that, some people say, well, this Paul gets completely off track. It wouldn't be bad. It would be inspired rabbit chasing if Paul's chasing a rabbit. But I, I don't think Paul's chasing a rabbit in, in chapter 9. If you read chapter 9, I think what Paul is doing is trying to say, I've tried to do this in my own life in ministry. And even toward you. In other words, I had rights. I had the authority to do some things. And I had the uh, reasonable expectation that I could do these things. But when I was with you, I didn't do them. Because I didn't know how you would manage. And then Paul goes back to this question of eating meat offered to idols in chapter 10. And if you read that for yourself, I'll let you do that. If you read that for yourself, you're going to find uh, maybe a surprising answer, a little more strict, with some leeway, but a little more strict. But the guiding principle is right here before us. Don't think that you who are puffed up with knowledge, proud, inflated, boy, knowledge does a, a number on you, right? Some of you might know that I've uh, tried to make my living along the way the last uh, few decades, let's say, by teaching. And let me tell you, it's a perilous, perilous exercise. I'm not sure we, say, we think this way anymore, but for a long time when, when I taught, uh, it, it's kind of, uh, it gets into your head when you say something and everybody in the room writes it down, right? That's not good for you. I mean, that is not good for you, right? Knowledge puffs up. I, I want to tell you, it's an occupational sort of hazard. And Paul's trying to say, you don't want to guide your life and live your life on the basis of your reasoned kind of explanation of all the things I'm actually allowed to do. I can do them. This is right. There's no gods. I don't have to be superstitious about this food. And Paul's trying to say, that's not the way to live life. The way to live life, as important as information and knowledge and teaching is in the church, the way to live life is out of a reverence and a commitment and a love to God. And, and that's going to that's gonna create in you not a, a, an arrogance, not, not a condescending attitude toward your brothers and sisters like, uh, these are simpletons who just don't know. Instead, once you have this kind of confessional love, this relational love in mind, and you're drawn into the love of God, and you love God in response for what God has done out of love for you in sending your son, that's going to strike in you a, a humility. And one of the ways you're going to see it played out is you won't be indifferent to the consequence of your action on those around you. Instead, you'll be mindful that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, and your rights will take a back seat. And love will be placed in the right place to help you discern the way in life. And life gets complicated. And if you're not aware of it, your children, grandchildren, dare I say it, great-grandchildren, are going to live in a different world where Christianity is not just simply the norm, and almost everybody you know who's religious goes to either the Methodist church or the Baptist church, or the church of Christ in town, right? 
Uh, things are more complicated than that right now, if you don't know. And they're going to get more and more complicated. And we're going to have to ask, what does it mean to be a Christian and live in a world and get along with the world and so on? And constantly we'll have kind of this kind of question that's going to be in front of us. And we're going to have to say, wow, how do I live in this world and make it and still so on? And, and Paul's just saying, uh, prideful knowledge is never going to get you there. But the one thing that can guide you is being driven and molded by love in response to the love that God has already shown you. God's already known you, and you're not going to get over that if you take the full measure of it. And you're going to think and live differently. Now, just a word or two more of application. And I feel obligated as a pastor long enough through the years to tell you this much. It's true that sometimes the wrong people get a hold of this verse. And they not merely apply this teaching, they exploit this teaching. And it takes a lot of love and a lot of discernment to sort of figure this out. But somewhere along the way, maybe there's someone who can tell them the truth and say, Wait, 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 you're not being the weaker brother. You're not being the weaker sister. You're, you're not about to be destroyed by this. and make, this, this doesn't make your faith vulnerable. Uh, and, and so you're crying out, hey, look at me, I'm the weaker brother. You stop that, I'm the weaker sister, I'm the weaker brother. You're the schoolyard bully. You're not the one about to be destroyed by faith, but you're the one who can't stand it when they don't get their way. And every time you don't get your way, you rise up and you say, well, I'm the weaker brother. You know, this injures me and so on. You know. And you use this as a club to get your way and to make everybody conform to your own behavior. I want to tell you, this takes discernment. This takes discernment about how to live together and how to live in the world together. And I don't know, it's, it's not just a simple, easy formula, but I have to tell you, it's got to start one place. It can't start with the pridefulness that comes with knowledge. It's got to start with this, the humility that comes from being the recipient of the grace of God. And if your life and your heart is rooted in that, you're going to find your way forward. And you'll come to the place where Paul's word is not onerous, but liberating. The truth is this. Dare I take the responsibility of charting this course on my own in defiance, just worried about my own rights and my own liberty. Instead, no, I need to chart this course of mine by a constant, constant measure of my fidelity and loyalty to the love of God that has grasped me in Jesus Christ. Now, this is about living in the world and making decisions and living with one another. And I've tried to tell you today, the heart of that starts with what? This confessional knowledge. This loyal knowledge, this knowledge that comes to you by trust when you surrender, surrender to the Jesus who has come to you and appealed to you and the spirit that works and woos in you and you've now come to see this God for who he is and you can't help if you've seen that rightly, love him back. And that's where knowledge starts, and that's the strength and depth, the guidance, and so on. And I want to tell you, though, it's more than just, it's more than just how we live and how we treat one another. 
It's actually how you live life to start with. It, it's about being a Christian. This is the question about how to be a Christian, how to take the first step of faith in life. It, that's the same kind of question I'm trying to tell you that guides us when we take further steps of faith in life, about how to live in community with one another. In other words, when you become a Christian, you have the same dynamic in play. You have the same drama. You have this set of convictions. You have this sense that I'm going to gear my life and I'm going to be in charge. And I'm going to go this way and go that way and so on. But then something happens. The Spirit woos you and moves you and gets your attention and takes your attention to Jesus Christ. And you see things from Him and you, you sense things about Him And you come to see that he loves you. And he wants you. He wants to bring you into the arms of the Father. He wants to repair your life. He wants to restore you. He wants to give life to you. And the only way you become a Christian is you see Jesus clearly and hear him. And then your response is one of faith and trust. And you ask Him to be your Savior. And you've prayed that prayer about forgiving your sins. And you've, you've entrusted your life to Him, right? And this is how you become a Christian. This is how you become a Christian. You set aside your own sense of authority. And you are swept into the love of God, this confessional love. And that's the first step of faith when you say, I'm not going to be the Lord of my own life. I'm going to entrust my life and my forgiveness and my destiny and everything I am to this God who's reached out to me in Jesus Christ. And that's the first step of faith. And Paul reminds us, when you get to the more complicated steps about how to live in a messy, complicated world and how to live with one another, Knowledge rests in the same place. Life is not about being in the know. Life is finally about being drawn into the love of God.